Welcome to this podcast on the Medicine HP Oral Presentation, how to give an inpatient presentation that everyone loves. I'm Debbie Chen, a fourth-year medical student at UC Davis, and we're fortunate to have here with us today Dr. Paul Aronowitz, an expert on many things, including oral presentations. Dr. Aronowitz, can you please tell us a little bit about your background and also what your favorite kind of music is? Well, first of all, I'm not sure how fortunate you are to have me here today, and I'm also not sure how much of an expert I am on oral presentations. I guess I've just listened to a lot of them, and I kind of know what I prefer uh, based both on the literature and my in-person experience. I'll do my best today to hopefully contribute to this podcast. Um, so uh, I originally went to college at Oberlin College in Ohio, and then Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine for medical school training and subsequently came out to the West Coast where I trained in internal medicine at UCSF in San Francisco. After that, I was a chief resident and then a faculty for a couple of years at UCSF and then left there to become a, one of the first hospitalists on the West Coast at California Pacific Medical Center in San Francisco. And then um, after that, I was the program director of the internal medicine residency for 11 years. So I've mostly been in education my whole life. And then uh, in 2012, I came to UC Davis to run the internal medicine clerkship, and I do various other sundry tasks around medical education as well as clinical care in the hospital as a hospitalist. Well, my favorite music, you asked about that. Um, so I would say that I really like almost all genres of music and listen to you know everything from world to rock and roll to folk to jazz. Um, the only thing I don't like all that much is rap. Um, but I guess if I was going to pick one genre to listen to 24 hours a day, it would be jazz. Thanks for your... Uh, background and we'll definitely remember the jazz part. So all right let's first start with the view from 30,000 feet. What is the purpose of the HP oral presentation? Well <clears throat> that's a key question in this podcast and I think the best way to approach the oral presentation is that it's a way to communicate the relevant components of a patient's case and to guide your audience as they're listening to come to the same assessment and plan as you did as you were working up your patient. So ultimately, the goal is to tell the team a story about who your patient is, why they're in the hospital, what you think is going on with your patient, and what the next steps in their care should be. Hmm, I like that. So tell a story. Imagine yourself as a medical student, and you're on your internal medicine rotation, and uh, your team admits a new patient. You interview your patient, do a physical exam, then you review any labs and available imaging, collect your thoughts for a little bit, and then you're ready to present to your attending and team on rounds. Now, the style of rounding will differ based on your attending, so make sure you ask about their expectations at the beginning of your time together. In this podcast, we'll focus on bedside rounds. Bedside rounding means that the patient will give a presentation to the entire team, including the patient, at the bedside. Now, I feel like that sounds easy enough. Why all the fuss about oral presentations? Are they really that important? <laughs> well, uh, I always like to say on a scale of 0 to 10, with 10 being super duper important, your oral presentation is an 11. So I found this to be one of the weaknesses of some medical students entering the clinical setting and even at times among new interns who are starting residency. 
oral presentations are not only central to inter-team communication and patient care, they're also used in assessing the progress of medical students. In other words, sometimes your grade is based on how you project yourself in presenting your patients. preeminent way in which a student communicates his or her competency, highlighting medical knowledge, clinical reasoning skills, interpersonal communication with both the team and the patient, as well as professionalism. So I don't mean to scare the audience, but the oral presentation is your chance to step out on the stage and show what you got where it really matters, which is in the context of real, live, honest-to-goodness patient care, not standardized patients, not lecture halls, not team-based learning sessions, and so forth, but right there in front of a real, live patient who you've worked up and assessed and come up with an assessment and plan for. Right. So being able to give a clear, concise, and accurate oral presentation will benefit patient care, improve team learning and morale on rounds, and also allow evaluators to get a sense for how you think and problem solve. But don't worry. After listening to this podcast, you'll have the tools to give an oral presentation that everyone loves. So, Dr. Ronowitz, you've listened to thousands of students and residents give oral presentations. Do you have any general tips for our podcast audience on what makes the great ones great? Definitely have some tips. So one aspect that many people have trouble with is timing. So ideally, a new patient H&P, and this is easier said than done, but it should be between five and seven minutes. And that should be your goal. I occasionally will see students go on to 10 minutes in a super complicated patient or such, but really your goal should be in that five to seven minute range. There's two reasons for that. One is because frequently when you're rounding, there are another 12 or 14 or 16 patients the team needs to go see that morning together. But it's also because it helps for you to discipline yourself to be able to present it in that concise amount of time. So the presentation should contain the most relevant parts of the patient's case and should not be a recitation of your write-up. Right. So... There's an interesting article on this. It was published in the American Journal of Medicine in November 1985. Now, I know that seems like a long time ago. Many of you listening probably weren't even born then. But I really like what the author, Dr. Kirk Kroenke, says about the oral presentation. He says, what takes 40 minutes to gather and 10 minutes to read might be heard in five minutes or less. The truth is not lost, but compressed. So I really like how this highlights the fact that your oral presentation really should be a synopsis of the key points that you obtained during your patient interview. I have a question. Dr. Ronitz, what were you doing in 1985? Well, actually, I hadn't even been born yet. So no, seriously, I was actually just starting medical school at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland, Ohio. It's actually kind of weird to think of you as an MS1. You have so much wisdom. Sure is weird to think of me as an MS1. (laughs) So do you have any other general tips for our med students? Well, so another piece of advice is to try and give your presentation from memory. Uh, And while this may sound somewhat intimidating at first, it will help you distill the presentation down to include only the essentials. Because really, what you have to cram into your memory should really be boiled down facts about the patient. So most faculty and residents are fine with you glancing at an index card or paper uh, if you need to write your labs down, um, because they mostly don't expect you to know those by heart. 
but uh, they would rather have the correct numbers than the wrong ones. But in general, the rest of the history and physical should be recited from memory if you can get to that point. Yeah, I definitely remember giving my first patient presentation from memory during rounds as a third year. And I was anxious about it at first, but it kind of felt refreshing not to use any notes and present only the most pertinent details. Perhaps that was also because I was your attending when you were presenting it, and I was making you nervous. But I think that this format, presenting from memory, can work really well for most students. Um, my last piece of advice for now is to make sure you follow the conventional order when you're presenting an H&P. And so I was thinking, Debbie, maybe you could quickly go through what the conventional order should be. Sure. So you want to present in SOAP format. So I'm sure this was drilled into your heads during the first two years, but here's a quick review. We start with the chief complaint, then go to the HPI, or history of present illness, review of systems, past medical and surgical history, medications, allergies, and then lastly, the social and family history. So that's all part of your objective, the, or subjective. And the objective contains vital signs, physical exam, labs, imaging, and procedural results in that order. And then last, you have your assessment and plan. So this is the order that your attendings and residents are expecting. Um, we are really creatures of habit, and it's also the way we trained and the way we train you to present. So if you stray from this, your audience can get totally lost, or what's even worse is they just stop listening to you, which can be really frustrating for you as a student. So if you mix exam into your history present illness or you mix labs into your exam or whatever, this is really the kiss of death for your presentation. So you want to keep it orderly, keep it clean, and keep it tight. Okay, so let's follow this order, and we're going to walk through each component of your presentation, starting with a chief complaint. So mentioning the chief complaint at the beginning helps orient your audience to the rest of your presentation. So your first sentence should include the name, age, any relevant history, and the chief complaint. So this would sound something like, Mrs. Smith is a 68-year-old woman with a long history of smoking, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, coronary artery and coronary artery disease who presents with shortness of breath. So I think as you can see, framing the presentation with this brief sentence, and I mean brief, about the chief complaint can be very helpful. So immediately, the listener starts thinking of potential diagnoses such as pneumonia, pulmonary embolism, myocardial infarction, congestive heart failure, COPD exacerbation, just to name a few. So you notice that for her chief complaint of shortness of breath, only the most relevant history was presented in an introductory line. Okay, keep saying relevant. What does that mean? So I think that's a good question. So for Mrs. Smith, we mentioned her history of smoking, COPD, and coronary artery disease because each of those diseases can help direct us toward a specific diagnosis on her differential diagnostic list for her chief complaint of shortness of breath. So if she'd had a recent hip replacement surgery, this would also be considered relevant since it might make pulmonary embolism a lot more likely on the list. However, you know, something like I don't know, a remote history of appendicitis when she was 18 years old is not nearly so relevant and should definitely not be mentioned in your opening line. Okay, got it. Patients that you'll see during internal medicine can often carry over 10 or 15 previous medical diagnoses. So choosing the most relevant ones to present requires a bit of practice and forethought. Uh, anyway, let's talk about the history of present illness. 
All right. So in the HPI, you want to tell a story about what brought the patient into the hospital. So with any good story, it should be told in chronological order. Start with when the patient last felt at his or her baseline and then go from there. It also helps the listener process the information if your timeline of the, if the timeline of your story is relative to the day of admission. So, for example, instead of saying symptoms started on Saturday, it's easier to follow if you say two days prior to admission. An effective HPI is clear and concise, but it also includes important details that will help the audience make a di- diagnosis and form a plan. Definitely. And remember that according to the medical literature, approximately 85 or 90% of correct diagnoses are made based on the history alone. So it may be helpful to allot a good portion of your presentation to the relevant portions of the history of present illness. Now that's a huge percentage. Do Do you have any suggestions for presenting the review of systems? Well, just as in your write up, the pertinent positives and negatives on review systems are part of your HPI. However, in your oral presentation, don't include any of the non-pertinent findings in a separate review of system section as you you would in, say, your written H&P. So you want to think of the rest of the subjective section as a supplement to the main story you give in your HPI. Any excessive detail will distract your already captive audience from the major message of your presentation. So it's totally fine during these oral presentations to say, other than the review of systems presented in the HPI, the rest of the review of systems was not contributory. In that, we assume that you took a thorough review of systems, and it will be in your H&P, obviously, but we don't need to hear it because if you start reciting it at the bedside, you will put us to sleep or at least bore us to tears. Yeah, so with that in mind, let's move to the past medical history. So remember our chief complaint one-liner was, Mrs. Smith is a 68-year-old woman with a long history of smoking, COPD, coronary artery disease, presenting with shortness of breath. So the past medical history is where you can expand on these previous medical diagnoses that you feel are relevant to the present illness. For example, it could be important to know if the patient is on home oxygen for her COPD or if she had a history of percutaneous coronary intervention for her CAD. This could provide valuable information on the severity of Mrs. Smith's medical problems, which could help us in forming our differential. Dr. Aronowitz, do you have anything else to add? Well, I think one other thing is that it would be good to mention if the patient has any history of significant illnesses. Um, For example, if Mrs. Smith also has Crohn's disease that is currently well-controlled on her medication regimen, you would mention uh, that in the past medical history, even if she has no current gastrointestinal complaints. Mm, Good point. Okay, so how about the surgical history? So the approach here is very similar uh, in presenting the past surgical history. Um, So you want to select the most relevant surgeries to present. So Mrs. Smith comes in with shortness of breath, so reporting her previous coronary artery bypass grafting surgery is definitely pertinent, but a history of cataract surgery 11 years ago probably does not need to be in your oral presentation. I can find that in your written HMP if I'm seeing the patient later in the day. Okay, so we've been talking about a lot about how it's important to pick out only the most relevant and the most pertinent details to present. So now you get a break. We're going to move on to the medications. And so generally for a new patient, you want to present every medication that he or she takes. 
although this may vary based on your attending. And as you know, some patients can be on many different medications, and presenting all of them in a long random list can be very hard to follow for the listener. So as the seasoned MS4 as you, that you are, Debbie, how have you approached presenting medications in this case where someone's on a lot of different medications? Yeah, so I think it's helpful to present them in groups. So, for example, you could say Mrs. Smith's cardiovascular medications include aspirin 81 milligrams every day, simvastatin 20 milligrams every day, and lisinopril 10 milligrams every day. And by the way, Dr. Ronowitz, do you recommend using trade or generic names? I'm actually really glad you brought that up. So on the wards and in the clinic, you will sometimes hear people using trade names, but most of us prefer using generic names. It just sounds more professional. Plus, um, you know, attendings and residents can be kind of quirky about this, and some of them insist that you only use generic names rather than trade. So I'd say get into the habit of using generic names only. Okay, I know it sounds more professional, but I feel like Zocor just sounds so much cooler than the Simvastatin. That's exactly what the pharmaceutical people want you to think. <laughs> I tell you, medical students these days. <laughs> Anyways, let's let's move on to the allergies. Just as you do in your written H&P, report any drug allergies that your patient has and mention the type of allergic reaction. Okay, I think we can probably move on to the social history. And back when I was in residency training, there was this guy in my program named Hippocrates, and he once said, that was a joke, it is more important to know what sort of a person has a disease than to know what sort of disease a person has. So the point being the social history often will give important clues as to why your patient fell ill and whether they had the support system to get better. So what you want to do is summarize the social history in two or three, at most, sentences to include tobacco, alcohol, recreational drug use, their employment, living, if they're employed, living situation, and sexual history if it's pertinent. So personally, in this section, I also really, really like a sentence about level of activity prior to admission for elderly or disabled patients. So it helps to give me an idea about what our goals are and what they should be prior to discharge. For example, if your patient was described as uh, she is limited to bed to bathroom and rarely leaves her home versus, say, she uses a front wheel walker but leaves her home to shop twice a week with her daughter's assistance, either one of those descriptors just gives me a really clear idea of what they were doing before they came in so I can kind of be thinking about that as we're trying to get the patient well again and send them either for physical therapy or directly home, depending on their condition. Hmm, that's a helpful tip. So I think one other thing to be aware of is when you're presenting the social history, your patient may or may not be comfortable with you talking about things like their IV drug use or social, uh, sexual history at their bedside because you're going to be in front, they're going to be in front of five other people on your team. So try to get a sense for their comfort level during your interview, and maybe you want to provide this information to your team at a different time. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Debbie. And actually, by the way, here at UCDMC, sometimes those team sizes can swell to eight, nine, ten people, depending on whether you have guests, like second-year students with you, or pharmacy residents and pharmacy uh, students and so forth. So it's a big audience, and I think you're making a good point. You want to be sensitive about these issues. It's very important in maintaining your patient's trust in you. All right. So we're almost done with the subject of what, what do we have left? 
So family history. Um, this is often a section where if you don't filter out the non-relevant points, you'll start noticing your attending dozing off at the bedside on his, his or her feet or your resident checking uh, his or her uh, email on the iPhone. So think about the patient's chief complaint and which elements of his or her family history could help you in making a diagnosis. So for example, if your patient presented with a painful uh, fever and a painful red rash that is highly suspicious for erysipelas or cellulitis, you do not need to mention that his father had a history of a myocardial infarction at age 82. Right, so we finished the subjective part of the oral presentation. As you may have noticed, relevance is really the key to delivering an oral presentation that everyone loves. And determining what is relevant is often a challenge because it kind of requires a certain degree of clinical experience to trim away the necessary details. I actually remember struggling with this when I first started rotation since I didn't want to miss anything important, but I also didn't want to be boring. So just know that you, you'll get better with more clinical experience and practice. I definitely agree. Um, so what do you say we take a short break here uh, so that our podcast audience has a chance to wake up, throw some ice water over their heads, and uh, rejoin us in a couple minutes. Sounds good. So now we're on the objective section, which should be presented in the order of vital signs, physical exam, labs and, Im labs and imaging, and procedure results. Dr. Aronowitz, you're a man in the physical exam. Do you have any tips for how to best present it? Well, that's correct. I still do really love the physical exam. I think it's, and just to, on a little bit of a tangent here, I love it because it's fun to learn, it's fun to get good at, and it really relies upon your hands-on skills as a clinician um, to kind of factor in your physical exam findings. Uh, it's also the most cost-effective cluster of tests that we do in medicine. So you may find it helpful to have a standard way to present a normal exam and the normal findings from head to toe that you can always use and just sort of breeze through. So once you have this framework down, you can tailor your presentation to each individual patient and their chief complaint. For example, if your patient presents with shortness of breath, make sure to do and to present a full pulmonary exam. 
So should students present all aspects of the physical exam they perform? Well, with a few caveats, I would say the answer, generally speaking to that, is yes. And the caveats are that um, it's generally good to present a complete physical exam, even if everything is normal. But by that, I mean that if you did a neurologic, a screening neurologic exam on your patients that were being admitted, and they're coming in for pneumonia or a stroke or what have, well, actually not a stroke, but for pneumonia, or uh, cellulitis or something like that, it's okay to say the neurologic exam was completed and was non-focal. You don't need to get into the cranial nerves, cerebellar findings, reflexes, strength, and so forth. But if they came in for a stroke, you, of course, would want to give a very detailed neurologic exam and probably less so of a dermatologic exam if they came in for a stroke. And you sort of probably get my point, right? We'll talk more about this later uh, for daily updates because there you're going to be much more selective of what you present in the physical exam when you're giving your everyday at the bedside uh, updated exam. And uh, as I said, it'll be in a future oral presentation podcast we're going to be doing. Right. So what are some common mistakes that students make when presenting the physical exam? Well, I found that some students have a tendency to literally point to a specific body part on themselves when they're describing a physical exam finding. And I know that sounds kind of funny, but it actually does not look good, and it's very distracting at the bedside. For example, instead of saying there was a maculopapular rash at the anterior medial aspect of the patient's left leg, the student will literally bend over and point to that part of their leg to indicate where the rash was on the patient. Or if the patient had posterior shoulder pain, they'll turn around and point to their own uh, base of the shoulder. Uh, same with abdominal pain, right lower quadrant pain, they point to their own right lower quadrant. So that you want to use words to describe the exam findings. Uh, it will make you sound much more professional and, and you'll look much more skilled as you're presenting. I always encourage students to think of it this way. Just imagine the patient has a rash on his or her genitalia. Are you going to point to your own genitalia during a presentation to indicate where the rash is, or are you going to use your words to describe where it is? And I, I don't mean to offend any of our lovely podcast audience, but sometimes it helps them to think, oh yeah, I guess it probably never looks good to be pointing at your own body parts. So think, think of the rest of the body in that way too. Yeah, that's a, definitely a good tip. Are there any more common mistakes that people tend to make? Well, I think just one more, and that's that the physical exam is your exam. Now, even if someone was there with you, like a resident or intern, um, and you two corroborated each other's findings, it's still your exam. So what you want to do is report what you found. Medical students early in their training are definitely a little bit underconfident and unsure about certain physical exam findings until they've seen them a few dozen times. And they sometimes reflect this uncertainty in their oral presentation by saying something, for example, like, I thought I heard a two out of six holostatic murmur at the left lower sternal border, but I'm sorry, I'm not very sure because that is not what the resident says he heard. So try to avoid adding that kind of commentary or apologizing during your presentation. It can really make an otherwise great presentation sound less professional, makes it sound unpolished, and is truly distracting. Yeah, and remember, if you're unsure about an exam finding, you can always ask your attending to verify what you found after your presentation, or you can also ask them to show you how to perform a specific exam maneuver. And absolutely. 
So how about for labs and imaging results? Many patients have oodles of this type of data. What's the best way, in your opinion, to consolidate this so we're not just listing off a dizzying stream of numbers? Well, again, this goes back to determining what values are most pertinent to what's happening with the patient. So think about what you have on your differential and which lab values can help guide you in making a diagnosis. Uh, Just as an example, if a patient comes in with a fever, flank tenderness, and dysuria, your team will probably want to hear specifically about the complete blood count because that contains the white blood count, the basic metabolic panel because they might be concerned about sodium, potassium, and of course the BUN and creatinine, the urinalysis because they're thinking they want to confirm that the patient has an infection in their urine, and then, uh, you know, if they, you've sent a urine culture and gram stain, you might note that that's been sent or that it, what the results are if you happen to be that far into the hospitalization. Because, you know, the team's going to be thinking at least a urinary tract infection or pyelonephritis more likely based on that initial one-liner. Right. So, again, let the chief complaint and your differential drive which lab values you choose to present. I actually find it helpful to first mention which lab tests were ordered and then know only the pertinent positives and negatives. So an example of how to present labs for our example patient with suspected pyelonephritis would be CBC, BMP, urinalysis, and urine cultures were ordered. Notable values included white blood cell count of 16 and urinalysis with large Luke esterase and 25 white blood cells. Urine cultures are pending. So this way, the listener can assume that all the other lab tests you mentioned were done, but were within normal limits. And remember that the objective section is meant for objective data only. I don't mean to sound harsh about this, but don't say white blood cell count is elevated at 16,000. If you say the white blood cell count is 16,000, I know it's elevated. The resident knows, the intern knows, and your co-student knows as well. So you don't need to interpret the data that you're presenting. It's truly objective. Just report the number and resist the temptation to interpret the data in the objective section. Interpretation goes in the assessment section, not in the objective section. Okay, so any advice on how to present radiologic studies? Also, findings on imaging should be presented as really super concise summary of the key findings. Don't read out the entire radiology report. I've seen this done any number of times. It is deadly. Uh, You just stop listening after a few minutes to it. This can be quite lengthy and miss the point of what was in the radiology, radiology report to begin with. Okay, so all in all, the objective section should be crisp, pertinent, and to the point. This will help keep your audience's attention for the best part of your presentation, which is the assessment and plan. Dr. Aronowitz, what would you say is the goal of this final section? So this section, the assessment and plan, is where you verbalize your clinical reasoning to make a diagnosis and plan for your patient. And So the goal is to be thorough and thoughtful, yet very concise. Start with your one-line summary, which should summarize your patient's most relevant history, objective findings, and top differential diagnosis, and all in one sentence. Okay, so I think I have one. So how about something like, in summary, we have a 68-year-old woman with a long history of smoking, COPD, and CAD, presenting with acute onset of shortness of breath. 
She was febrile and found to have ronchi, an elevated white count, and consolidation on chest x-ray, which is most consistent with a diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia. Awesome. Uh, I like that one-liner because it clearly highlights the most important aspects of the patient's presentation that point to your top differential diagnosis, which is community-acquired pneumonia. So how do you organize the presentation of the problem list after you've done your one-liner, Debbie? So after the one-liner, you will want to pick out the most pressing issues on your patient's problem list to present. If your patient has multiple medical problems, pick the top three or so that are most concerning. Your plan for the remaining problems will be documented in your write-up, so don't waste your precious presentation time on those. Okay, Um, can you give an example of how this would play out in the presentation then? Sure, so after giving your one-line assessment on, um, say for example, our 68-year-old patient with probable pneumonia, you could say problem number one, community-acquired pneumonia. Then you would go on to describe the way you approach making this clinical diagnosis. Also remember to list two to three other differential diagnoses that you've considered and explain why those are less likely. Then you end with your plan for that problem and then go on to problem number two. One thing to note is that in medicine, we often think of many different diag- uh, differential diagnoses. So the question is, do we present all of them in the oral presentation? No, generally not, uh, unless you really have no idea about what's going on with your patient. So most often you'll be able to narrow it down to the top three or so differential diagnoses and present those. And I'm not saying you don't think of many other differential diagnoses as you're reading the night before you do your presentation or reading up on your patient to learn as much as you can. But for the purposes of an oral presentation, try and keep it down to about three possibilities because you're gonna really start losing people's attention once you start talking about your fifth or sixth or seventh differential diagnosis item. Right, so this is obviously the most important part of your presentation. Do you have any tips, Dr. Ronis, for how to effectively present the assessment and plan? Yes, I do, Debbie. Um, This is the section that early learners tend to have the most trouble with. Um, Before you give your presentation, try to have a clear idea of your top differential diagnosis and and the plan. Um, And think of it as the finale to your presentation. You know, it's like that. There's probably some word for operas where you come to the climax of the opera, but that's what this is. Don't be afraid of being wrong and present your plan with confidence. Um, Your team wants to hear what you think, since you often have spent more time with the patient, believe it or not, than anyone else in the hospital at that point in the hospitalization. Yeah, that's a good tip. So you've done all the work, collected the history, thought about the patient. Just don't be shy about telling the team what you would like to do for him or her. So again, Debbie, based on your um, immense uh, student experience, and you've done a lot of rotations to this point, you're almost done with medical school. Congratulations on that, by the way. Do you have any specific tips on giving a presentation actually at the bedside with the real live patient? Yeah, yeah. So I like presenting at the bedside because it kind of gives the patient a chance to be involved in their care. So but I, I found that it may seem kind of challenging because you're presenting with all these foreign medical terms that your patient may not really um, understand. So um, oftentimes I'll come in and introduce the patient to the rest of the team, and then I'll let the patient know that I'll be presenting his story. 
and then uh, welcome any care, uh, clarifications or questions that they may have. Then during the presentation, I'll try to make eye contact with the patient as well as with every other member of the team. Yeah, no, that sounds great. And I think learning how to give a good oral presentation definitely takes practice. A key thing that I think many students here at UC Davis School of Medicine are really pretty good about when they come on the wards is to ask your residents and attendings for feedback. That can be really, really helpful. And another thing you can do is you can actually record yourself at the bedside and listen to yourself later, as painful that, as that is. I know we did that with you back Yeah, or have your attending record you. <laughs> uh, it was fun. <laughs> um, but definitely you get a lot of good feedback just from listening to yourself. Right, right. So um, it, it actually can be helpful to know generally what faculty across the nation feel are most important for a well-done oral case presentation. So a survey of members of the clerkship directors of internal medicine found that the top four expectations that experienced medical educators had were one, organizing the presentation according to usual standards. So this is basically the SOAP order that we talked about. So two, relaying a complete and accurate history of present illness. Three, picking out the pertinent details to present. And four, creating a prioritized assessment and plan that focuses on the most important problems. And so this is really valuable information because, as we know, clerkship directors are very important people, right, Dr. Ronowitz? Oh, yeah. They're the cat's meow, those clerkship directors of internal medicine. <laughs> Anyways, you now have the basic tools to give an oral presentation that everyone loves. To summarize, do remember to keep your patient presentation clear and concise and aim for five to seven minutes. Introduce everyone when you're when you first enter your patient's room and make eye contact with your patient and entire team while presenting at the bedside. Tell a story in the history of present illness and present only the most relevant points in the history. Don't recite your written HNP and remember to be cognizant about the sensitive issues in the social history when you're presenting in front of a patient. And in the objective section, present vital signs, physical exam, labs, imaging, and procedural data in that specific order. The physical exam should be presented from head to toe and let your chief complaint drive which labs and imaging results you present. Remember to use your words when describing the physical exam and don't insert your interpretation into the objective section. And to wrap it all up, the assessment and plan should clearly identify your top diagnosis and your clinical reasoning behind why you think that diagnosis is the most likely one. Along with this, you should have at least two to three things in the differential diagnosis and spend a little bit of time explaining why those things are not as likely. Then, after carefully researching and thinking of a plan, present it with confidence. Make sure to present a prioritized problem list of the top three or so most concerning issues for your patient and talk about each problem separately. And throughout your presentation, don't stray from the SOAP format. Refrain from apologizing or inserting com commentary. And lastly, practice presenting from memory. It can help your presentation sound more focused and relevant. So we hope that you've enjoyed this podcast and have learned a few things about how to give a successful oral presentation that everyone will love and adore. And remember, different attendings on different services will have different preferences on what they want to hear. So always be flexible when you're in your clinical years and ask for frequent feedback about how you're doing. And remember, oral presentations are important for both clinical care and learning on the wards. Thanks for listening. Good luck and have fun.
Today you heard Biking in the Park by Lee Rosevere, Ballsy Mossy by Boom Boom Beckett, and currently you are enjoying Second by Paolo Pavin.